Good evening. How's everyone doing this evening? Pretty good. Fired up? Sound really excited? Wow, goodness me. Must be a room full of West Tigers fans like me. Uh, it's a miserable road, but we walk it by God's grace. How's everyone doing? Let's try again. All right, are we fired up? All right, we're going to warm up to that. Never mind. We're going to turn in our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. Of course, Pastor Tom, in the previous Sunday nights, has been walking through this wonderful epistle, one of what's called the prison epistles from the Apostle Paul, and, uh, and he's asked me to speak tonight, and the, the passage that has been allocated to me is a tremendous providential blessing from God, which we shall see. Now, all of God's Word is, of course, a blessing, no question about that, but these are one of those unique passages that just seems like it's a, it's a gold mine of gospel richness. So, if I haven't met you before, my name is Craig. I used to come here quite a lot many moons ago, uh, back in 2008. My wife in the front row here and myself, we planted this church from scratch, and then God thought, no, nope, get rid of him. Tom's here now with uh, Vic and Keith serving this church wonderfully well, but we're so glad at least to be back in this short season of time serving and seeing what God will do. So without further ado, Ephesians chapter 3, we're going to read from verse 14. To verse 21, verse 14 to verse 21. This is one of those passages, like I said, that is so memorable and so catchy and just wonderfully full of God's promises and his goodness. Paul the Apostle writes this, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. How about that? What a wonderful providence it is when the lead pastor, Tom, goes away. Craig, I need you to step up and preach for me Sunday night. Oh, by the way, the passage that you happen to be allocated is that. What a goldmine. I guess the pressure upon me is to give it some kind of justice here tonight and at least make it appear as glorious as the text on the page. We thank God for this reading of his own precious and infallible word to us. This, this opening line that, that we see here in our text, verse 14... Paul says, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. This is, this is a curious idiom of speech. It, it's a way that the apostle is trying to articulate that God reigns in sovereignty and unchecked, unequaled, maximal glory. That's, that's the God of the Bible. So when Paul uses this phrase, that every family on earth has been named by God. What Paul is saying is that that's the jurisdiction of the sovereign Lord 
of Scripture. It's kind of like me as a father. I'm blessed with four children, and it was really up to me to name those four children in, of course, correspondence with my wife. Correspond, what a weird word, correspondence. We, we're pen pals. We worked out the names of our, of our kids. In concert with my wife, we came up with the names of our children, and given our names of our children are half Puritans and half Finnish names, I'm always explaining them, but no one questions my right to name my kids what I want to name them. There are, there's some weird names out there. I actually saw a story recently. I don't mean to sidetrack. We've got so much to get through. But I've got to tell you this story of this lady uh, who, who had a, a daughter, maybe six or seven years of age, and she's perpetually introducing this daughter by her name, which she calls Famale, like, like a tamale, right? Like a, like a Tex-Mex food. Famale. And they said, what a, what a strange exotic name, someone said. Where did you get that name from? And she said, I didn't name her. The hospital did. Female. I'm not making this up. Or have you seen the one A, B, C, D, E? Absidy, have you seen that one? Like, at some point, your creativity should be checked. You should just tap out and give your child a fairly regular name. And here's me. I guess I'm as guilty as anyone. But this speaks to the, the jurisdiction of lordship. That's why Paul says, that's why Paul says, I bow my knees before the Father, of whom every family on earth is named. The God we serve reigns and rules in unchecked sovereignty. Now, we can say that. That feels very Christian, right? That feels very par for the course. That's kind of Christianity 101. Who reigns? God reigns. Who's Lord? Jesus is Lord. But I would argue here tonight that there are times where we undermine the veracity of that truth by our life. I heard a story. It's a made-up story. It's an illustration some time ago. And I, I don't know where this came from or who came up with this. It's pretty genius. I heard it through, a, I think, a sermon from Douglas Wilson, pastoring in Moscow, Idaho. And he tells this funny little, this funny little illustration. He says there's this, there's this man who's walking through a, a dark alley at night, right, fairly injudiciously, right? And, and while he's walking through the dark alley, there's a, there's a big bulge in his back pocket. He's got a, a wallet that's just bulging with $100 bills, right? And he's walking through this dark alley, and uh, up from behind him, stalks an assailant. Some of you heard this story before, you know where this is going. And the assailant from behind suddenly presses the cold steel of a gun against the small of the back of the man who imprudently walked down the dark alley at night. And the assailant said in the, the most gruff voice he can conjure up to sound as intimidating as he could, freeze, give me all your money. And the, the guy walking, kind of just nonchalantly, minding his own business, he pauses and he says to his assailant, why should I? And the assailant says, freeze or I will shoot. Help us out. Shoot, right? You knew where that sentence was going. Hopefully I haven't lost you at this point. Freeze or I will shoot. At which the victim then says, as politely as he can conjure up, he says, listen, I don't mean to be rude. And I understand this is how you make your crust. You rob people in this alleyway. But here's the deal. He says, I actually don't believe in guns. Now, he said, I, I, I fully respect that you do. And he said, look, I'll even admit that I grew up in a family where my, my parents believed in guns. They loved to go out hunting and recreational shooting. I just don't believe in guns. Now, the assailant's pretty flummoxed, pretty confused at this point. Like, what, what on earth has that got to do with anything? How does that have any bearing on reality of the situation? If you don't give me your money, I'll shoot. And the victim says, no, no, I'm telling you, 
as honestly and plainly and directly as I can, I'm just not a believer. I'm not a believer. Now, this is a made-up story. Hopefully, that's obvious to you. If the assailant then holsters his weapon and meanders off cowardly back into the darkness, the problem with the situation is not that the victim didn't believe in guns. The problem with the situation is that the the assailant didn't believe in his gun, right? Do Do you see that's where the problem lies? If you have the gun and you are told to holster it because of the disbelief of the person you're talking with, it shows that you are lacking belief. Now, we Christians do this all the time. We, we engage with an unbelieving world, with an atheist friend at work, that agnostic person you meet on the bus every morning, and you want to use your Bible, but you know what they're going to say? Well, I don't believe, I don't believe in the Bible. Sheath your sword, O Christian soldier. I don't believe in the Bible. And what do we do? Well, we take our Bible, stuff it back into our bag. We take the sword of the Spirit, sheath it back into its, back into its place, and we do not utilize the weapon that God has granted us. The great philosopher, theologian of the 18th century, Jonathan Edwards used to say, there is nothing more certain than that there is an unmade and unlimited being. Nothing more certain. And here's the reality that Paul says, this this God of all, this Lord of all, this reigning monarch of heaven and earth of which every knee bows, every tongue confesses, he is Lord and we Christians, we cower We take a backward step. We apologize. We act like there's something to be ashamed about standing on the bedrock of the confession that Jesus is Lord. And when we do that, it's not their unbelief that's the problem. It becomes ours. To stand firm on the bedrock of our faith. This is the confession of the apostle. Every family in heaven, on earth, is under the jurisdiction of the Lord. And it says in verse 16... That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. According to the riches of his glory, how rich is God's glory? Or let's ask the question differently, how glorious are God's riches? These are are questions that that bend the mind and stretch the imagination because God is unlimited. God is uncreated. God is transcendental. God's glory is beyond any ability to quantify. So these questions, how rich is God's glory or how glorious are his riches, they reduce the mind to a heap of humble bewilderment and so they should There can be no true comprehension of this, just sheer amazement. We are told that according to God's glory and his riches, he has granted you. Let's pause on that spot. He has granted you. Let's think about this for a moment. It's evident that Paul wants you to realize that when this sovereign, this Lord, this maximal ruling or glorious king is going to offer you something... It is something beyond your ability to describe, to think, to even ask or imagine. I was listening to a podcast the other week. Yes, sometimes I fall victim to that practice too. 
and this particular podcast, not necessarily Christian, more like a more like a geopolitical commentary podcast. And I didn't really know the characters that were talking, but it, it came on and I listened for a little while. And one of the guys said something really interesting. He said, he said, it's actually fairly reasonably assumed now that there are trillionaires in the world. I was like, wow, that sounds that sounds newsworthy, right? I don't, I don't know any kind of list of trillionaires. I know there are lists of billionaires. And this guy went on to argue the point. He said, he said, the reality is in the Western world, people are, people are burdened with declaring their income. They, 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 they pay taxes. They, they, they declare what their wealth is. But there are, there are princes in Arabia that rule, that never pay taxes, never declare their income. And it is generally assumed now that among them are trillionaires. Now, I don't have time tonight to do the math. I pretend it's because of time. It's mostly because I can't do math. I don't have the time to do math is what we're all going to buy into is my reason. But in order to show the difference from a billion to a trillion would be certainly stretching of our ability to comprehend. Now, if a trillionaire came to you and said, I've got something to give you, you would presume it's probably going to be life-changing. It's probably going to be something that radically alters your existence and your view of the world around you. And this is the exercise that Paul is trying to conduct. He starts out with the premise, as you begin to meditate on the glorious riches of an infinite sovereign God. Every dollar on earth, everywhere right now, ultimately belongs to God. The entire earth, all the real estate, belongs to God. In fact, every planet, star, meteor, asteroid, everything that exists belongs to to God, he says, meditate on my riches for a moment. He says, and now I've come to offer you something. I've come to grant you something. I've come to bestow upon you a blessing. And so we must be ready to be wowed. According to his wealth, God says. When he says that, he's ready, of course, to change our lives with the reality of what he says. God's riches, God's glory, every trillion on earth is a pauper in comparison. He says, I'm going to grant you this blessing to be strengthened with power through the Spirit in your inner being. Now, this is a repeated theme in this passage. Strength and power. Strength and power. And part of the reason why this keeps coming up as a a theme in this passage is because... These ideas, these concepts that we're wrestling with are beyond your natural ability to even apprehend. That's why when we read a passage like this, it it feels feels something like mythical. But this is the granting of God. Further down, we read this in verse 18 and 19, that we have been strengthened to comprehend with all the saints what is the, the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth, to know the love of Christ. And again, further down, we will read this. God is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. Strength and power. Strength and power. It's all from God. It's all according to His glory, and it all redounds back to Him in glory. How does He confer this inner strength and power? We can stand here all night, or I'm standing, you're you're sitting, right? It's quite the reverse from the first century. If you went to a church in the first century, the preacher would have been sitting, and you all would have been standing up, but such has the age degraded, as we can tell. The cripple stands, 
and all you very healthy, fit, vibrant people are seated in the comfort. I'm up here sweating with this fan that feels like it's blowing hot air. I think this is a torture tactic. I understand that this has been set up by Tom to punish me. My water has gone missing. This whole situation is fabricated to punish me for my sins, and I still think I'm getting off fairly lightly. Power and strength. I'm going to find my place again. How does God grant this power and strength? From whence does it come? The scripture tells us very clearly it's through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God. That's what verse 16 says. Through the Spirit. According to the riches of His glory, He grants you to be strengthened and power with power through the Spirit in your inner being. Let me read you a, a paragraph here, if you'll allow me to do this, from R.A. Torrey. I don't think many of you probably have ever approached the material of, <clears throat> I'm losing my voice, R.A. Torrey. I think Vic's going to get me some water. Vic, you've changed. <laughs> wow, thank you, sir. I would say R.A. Torrey is one of the, uh, those that wrote on the Holy Spirit in a most profound way, and I'll read you a couple of sentences from his book on the Holy Spirit. R.A. Torrey wrote this. <clears throat> he said, if we once grasp the thought that the Holy Spirit is a divine person of infinite majesty, glory, holiness, power, who in marvelous condescension has come into our hearts to make his abode there and to take possession of our lives and make use of them, it will put us in the dust and keep us in the dust. Thank you, McKay. Appreciate that. Okay, George. Uh, yours doesn't taste as good. <laughs> this is what Tori concludes with. He says this. He says, I can think of no thought more humbling or more overwhelming than the thought that a person of divine majesty and glory dwells in us. And is ready to use us. So, here's a challenge to our Christianese. My voice is gone. Just tolerate me for the next two hours. I've got a lot of material. Bear with me, I beg you. This idea, the Spirit dwells in us, is among the most abused ideals in modern day Christendom. It's, it's a throwaway line, isn't it? We have the Holy Spirit. Well, the Holy Spirit's taken up residence in me. Or the Spirit indwells us and... We just say that like we're not actually saying a person of the divine Godhead is now dwelling in you. That's why Tori says, if you stopped for a moment and thought about it, you would collapse in the dust and you couldn't get up. That's the strengthen and the power of God in you, in all of us, by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. By this Spirit who we know from Ephesians 1 is the down payment of our redemption. Let me read you Ephesians 1, 3, and 4. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, <laughs> who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. We understand from this, and the passage that by the Spirit dwelling in us, Christ dwells in us. 
We're not talking here about an immersive, super spiritual, mystical, nebulous, recondite experience. There are many charlatans today that have commandeered this language, the spirit dwelling in you, the spirit infilling you, the spirit empowering you. And they do that in such a way as to downgrade what it really means and what the scripture is really saying. And even just now, as I've been talking about this, some of you have been saying to yourself, is all that true? I mean, is, is it really God, his personhood in the spirit dwelling in me? Is that, is that true? Why don't I feel something? Or, or where, where is the experience of that? I have seen this recently on social media. This has become a great debate about you need to feel your Christianity. You need to feel the Holy Spirit or you don't have him. That's not what your Bible says. And so charlatans and hucksters love this language. They say things like, have you ever had the real presence of Christ in you? To get it, you've got to pray like this. You've got to live like this. You've got to give like this. You've got to perform ceremonies and pay offerings and behave in certain ways and recite mantras and recondite prayers. That is the religion of hucksters, not the New Testament. Be very clear about this. Here's what the Bible says. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts, help me out, through faith. We already saw this in Ephesians 1. It says, it says when you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. Now in verse 17 of Ephesians 3, we read that Christ dwells in you by faith. The question is not, have you felt the Spirit? The question is, do you trust in Christ? If you've trusted in Christ as the gospel commands, then you have the indwelling spirit. How do I know? Because you can't trust in Christ without the indwelling spirit. The evidence is already there. That's why the gospel says, that's why Paul says, it's the down payment of our inheritance. This is how this works. Let me simplify this as best as I can. If you have trusted in Christ for your salvation, you did so through a spirit-empowered faith. That's the truth. If you have the Holy Spirit, that's God paying a deposit guaranteeing that you won't ever be lost. You won't ever be absconded or abandoned or rejected. That's what the Bible tells us. That Christ dwells in our hearts by faith. Spirit-born, spirit-sustained faith is the key to the divine power and glory and privilege of the godly life. For a distinct purpose, let's read on. Verse 17, 18, or the end of verse 17 to verse 19. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the, the breadth, the length, the height, the depth, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Where does one start with this passage? The result of this faith, the essence of faith, the basis of faith to trust in Christ is access to all of this glory and this privilege, rooted and grounded in love, firm, stable, strong. The ability to comprehend, to apprehend with all the saints what the breadth, the length, the height, the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. I love that line. To know that 
which already surpasses knowledge. That's the glory of faith. It is a type of knowing and being reassured and being certain of the glory of God in Christ. That no trial can rob that of you. The world can't convince you otherwise. Deceitful philosophies can't steal that from you. This is the privilege of the redeemed. Now, before we keep going, it's almost certain that some people are thinking to themselves, all this experience, isn't it sound so amazing? But they say, I don't really feel anything. If this is true of me, I, I've trusted Christ and I try and be obedient and I love the Lord, but all of these wonderful things, knowledge that passes understanding, to know the height and the depth and the length and the breadth of the love of Christ, I just don't know if I feel that. And that's a tension that we all have to continually wrestle with. Nowhere in this passage are we discussing feelings. Nowhere in this passage are we talking about an emotional experience. We are too prone at times to look for emotions to tell us what we are experiencing. This will never be that in the Christian life. The gifted hymn writer, Cowper, wrote this. Some of you know this hymn well. He says, O fearful saints, new courage take. The clouds that you now dread are big with mercy and will break with blessing on your head. This is the line, judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, some of you not well, he hides a smiling face. I guess no one knows it well. No one knows the hymn very well. A simple childlike faith is access into every promise of God because by that, the Spirit of God dwells fully and functionally in every one of us. That's the argument of the apostle. Not to turn this into a, an assessment of your emotions and your feelings and, and some, kind of, some kind of inventory of your behavior and your actions. Do you trust Christ? Because this is the means of obtaining his glorious promise. So one might ask, what is the content of this knowledge? What is this knowledge that surpasses knowledge? Or what is this knowledge that's past finding out? What, what is this? What is the data point? The answer is Christ. It's always Christ. Christianity, properly speaking, isn't a philosophy. It's not a religion. It's not even a lifestyle. Don't let people sway you with that silliness. It is the reality of the person of Jesus Christ. That's what it is. The end result is that we who are filled with Christ are filled with the triumph, the glory of the triune God. We see this in verse 19, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. All of this redounds to God's glory. All of this comes from God's glory and it returns to God in glory. This is the experience of the believer, and it's not based upon what you've done to earn it or how you think you've deserved it or how you've merited it. There's no place for any of that talk. This is because God is good, because God is glorious, because God is rich, and he looks for those that are the least deserving, the most undeserving, and he grants this glorious privilege in Christ. 
the doxological completion of this passage, verse 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is so jarring. When we meditate upon this reality, this language that Paul uses, the the fullness of God indwelling us, the Spirit, Christ, the Father, take up residence in us by the Holy Spirit, and God pours out blessing upon blessing upon blessing. He doesn't ask your permission. He doesn't ask if you feel it. He doesn't ask if you're experiencing it. He just tells you it's true. The Bible says it's true. That's why it says he's able to do far more exceedingly beyond all that you ever thought to ask, think, or imagine. As you find your place in Christ by faith, he blesses you with all of these spiritual blessings, and he doesn't stop to make sure that it's okay with you. Thank God for that. This is the full possession of the inheritance It doesn't save the most spiritual. You've got to climb the ladder of spirituality to get these good riches. Not at all. It doesn't even say to the best behaved. It doesn't say to the hardest working or the most religious or the smartest or the favorite. These riches that are in Christ are available freely to anyone who is willing to lay hold of them with a childlike Faith, a simple act of faith to receive Christ as God has granted him as the redemption for our, from our sins and for our eternal life. It's that simple. Oh, we humans have such propensity to complicate the gospel. Well, one theologian rightly said it like this. He said, he said, evangelism is one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. That's all it is. I am a beggar spiritually, I'm bankrupt, and God has said, here is all you need, glory, riches, strength, power, knowledge, nothing lacking, nothing missing. Do you want it? It's yours in Christ. Take him by faith. This is why the end of the verse tells us, the end of our passage tells us that all the glory is God's. To God be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. This language in the church, we read it earlier, with all the saints, membership and access to this family and this privilege is in the church of Christ by faith. Throughout all generations, forever and ever, and God's people said, amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this privilege tonight to gather in Jesus' name. We thank you, Lord God, that your gospel has reminded us, as it always so eloquently does, that we are bankrupt. That we in our natural state are degenerate, fallen, and failing, and we cannot lift a finger to save ourselves. Yet, God, this was according to your eternal plan, that you would obtain all the glory that you would grant your fullness of your grace to those who are entirely without help and without hope. And here comes Christ in the gospel. 
Father, we thank you that you've given Jesus. He came into this world and lived a sin-free life where we entirely failed to do that. And then he died upon the cross and he shed his innocent blood to save us, to pay the penalty for our sins, to, to cover our indiscretions. We thank you, Lord, for Jesus, who though he died on that cross, he rose in glorious victory and triumph, proving that he has conquered death, he has conquered sin, and he has conquered Satan. We thank you, Lord, that now Jesus has ascended in glory. He pours out these manifold blessings upon each and every one of us, merely on account of faith. Not because we need to work harder or do more or give more money or behave ourselves better, but because Jesus is perfect and entirely able to save to the uttermost all and any who receive him by faith. Father, I pray tonight, even as I've tried in my weakness to, to speak these verses and, and my voice failed and, and didn't get to the things I needed to get to, Lord God, but you are good and you use your gospel in power to change lives. Father, there are those of us here tonight, we just felt empty, we felt, we felt void of any spiritual life and now we've been reminded it doesn't matter how we feel. These truths are objectively true because we've received Jesus. And Father, other people here tonight who came in, they didn't know Jesus. They knew about Jesus, but they never, they never really trusted Christ. And now they've been confronted with this wonderful news that if they receive Jesus by faith, even right now as I'm praying, they become an immediate inheritor, having access to all of His glory all of this riches, all strength and power and glory, because you, God, delight to pour out your grace. We thank you for the gospel. May it strengthen us and bear fruit in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.